0: You're listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah this morning. I had uh, planned to uh, finish this book a couple of weeks ago, but uh, the Lord had uh, some other plans. So here we are today uh, looking at Nehemiah chapter 13. We've been in this series for a good while now, and this is the climax, or the the ending of it, rather, and uh, I hope that you've been encouraged uh, by the book and challenged, and that you will be so today. Uh, In case you're wondering of where we might be going next in our preaching time together, I want to encourage you this week with an assignment to read the book of Romans and uh, to begin preparing your heart uh, for what God would say to us through it. But today, we finish up the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, but I do want to read all of it uh, this morning. So let's give our attention to the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessel's, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, Nehemiah says, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of a house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. "'I also found out that the portions of the Levites "'had not been given to them "'so that the Levites and the singers who did the work "'had fled, each to his own field. "'So I confronted the officials and said, "'Why is the house of God forsaken? "'And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. "'Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, "'wine, and oil into the storehouses. "'And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses,' Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for His service." In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is the, this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and the other could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help now as we try to understand and apply faithfully your word here in Nehemiah 13. Give us ears to hear. And I pray that you would use me as your servant today, that you would increase and I would decrease, and your word would go forth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I might just say, wow, what an ending to the story of Nehemiah. If I were writing the story myself, I think I would have ended in chapter 12, maybe along the lines of verse 43 when they're all uh, celebrating and worshiping God for all the great things that he had done and it would have been a glorious moment I would have inserted kind of a glorious sunset in the backdrop there and and uh, some spectacular exhilarating music and then we would roll the credits at the end of chapter 12 and we would all went away very happy and and full and all those different things but that is not what happens The book essentially, uh, basically ends in in failure in some ways. Keep in mind that uh, the events of here in chapter 13 took place several years after the events of chapters 1 through uh, 12 that we looked at. Uh, In fact, after being governor for 12 years, Nehemiah at some point returns back to Persia to serve the king. And he remained there several years. Some believe somewhere between maybe 8 years and, and even up to 20 years he was gone. Uh, And so chapter 13 describes the changes that happened when Nehemiah had left, and when he comes back, he discovers all of these things, and what he finds is stunning, because this revival that we witness in chapters 8 through 12, where people were centering their lives around God's Word, and confessing their sin, and recommitting themselves to God, and, and His covenant, that many of them failed spectacularly in these... Commitments. Let me just note a few of them from the text. First, the people failed to be holy in regard to the temple. That was his first thing that he discovered. The temple was the very center of their worship. Chapter 13 begins with what seems uh, to show the people's obedience to the law, referring to Deuteronomy 23, which commanded that the Ammonites and Moabites be excluded from the assembly of God in worship. And and yet we learn in verses 4 and 5 that Tobiah, who was an Ammonite, had actually taken up residence inside the temple. It wasn't just that he wasn't participating in worship, he had moved in. Remember, he was one of the most outspoken enemies of God's work. Back in chapter 2 and chapter 4, he had actually moved in and was living in the temple. Verses 4 through 14, we learn that the tithes and offerings were no longer be given, and that the storeroom where those tithes would have been received had been cleaned out to make an office for Tobiah. Verse 5 says that elijah of the priests had prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, frankincense, vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil. And of course, this infuriated Nehemiah, and rightly so. Verse 8, he says, I was very angry. How angry was he? It says that he threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and I cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there are the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and the frankincense. This reminds us similarly to Jesus who cleansed the temple. You remember that story when he drove out the money changers? In righteous anger, he, Nehemiah throws out Tobias' furniture on, on the street and he brings back all of the, the vessels that were used in, in worship of God. It wasn't the only place they'd failed, they had failed to also be holy in regard to the Sabbath. We see this in verse 15. He talks about those days I saw in Judah, people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. In other words, they're working on the Sabbath. They're bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the the Sabbath day. And he talks about here some of the foreigners, and again, the the point is not ethnicity or anything, but, but they weren't followers of God. And they're bringing in all these goods on Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and the Jews were buying from them. It's really a spectacular fall from what we saw in chapter 10. We talked about the commitment that they made concerning the Sabbath. It seemed like such a short time ago. We're going to honor God. We're going to put Him first. We're going to keep the Sabbath day as a day of rest and worship. But the prophet had apparently triumphed over purity. Keeping the Sabbath was a major concern to both Nehemiah and Ezra and many of the prophets in the Old Testament. A fact that Nehemiah alludes to in verse 18, he said, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. In other words, he reminds them, don't you remember, you just came out of exile. Because God sent you there. He disciplined you for doing these very things that you're doing. And it may seem petty to us. We may read this and say, what in the world? Shopping on the Sabbath day? So what? What's the big deal? Here's a guy who has one room in the temple. I mean, come on. This seems like an an overreaction. But Nehemiah's response shows us it was a big deal. It was the very glory of God and the primacy of God, and their obedience to to God in their their worship that was at stake. So verse 19, he commands that the doors be shut, the gates, he gave orders, they should not be open until after the Sabbath. He stationed some of his servants at the gates, and he said there's not going to be any more loads brought in here on the Sabbath day. And he warned those who even camped right outside the city gates, verse 21. He says, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And I get the sense Nehemiah meant it. From that time on, they didn't come in the Sabbath. Uh, Third, the people failed to be holy in relation to marriage. This is in verses 23 through 29. We talked about this in chapter 10. It's one of the themes of the Old Testament, how God's people were not to intermarry with foreigners, and again, not having to do with racism or ethnicity or skin color or any of those things, but for spiritual reasons, because it had been the foreign wives that Israel was led into idolatry so many times. It's what led King, to King Solomon's downfall and, and the nation being led into exile. Nehemiah reminds them of this, verse 26, he said, did not Solomon... King of Israel? Sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin, again, because they led him astray to follow their gods. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And it's here that this failure brings the most vehement response from Nehemiah, verse 25. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Wow. What are we to do with this here in chapter 13? Did Nehemiah have an anger problem? is that what the is that what the subject supposed to be? Did did uh, was he just he just kind of grow up to be a grumpy old man? Is this uh part of the Old Testament, you know, that we just need to set aside because it, you know it was the Old Testament and there's not really much. Like having an uncle in your family, you know, that you hope no one ever meets and ever associates with you. Do we kind of like chalk this up as out of date and irrelevant or is there a important message that Nehemiah is teaching us. I think you know that I think it's an important message. I think this ending in chapter 13 is a critical reminder to us that conformity to the world is a constant snare for the church. Conformity to the world, That is, the pull of the world to compromise never lets up in our Christian lives. This took place again, perhaps several years, perhaps it began with small compromises that just kind of built on themselves, but slowly but surely this tug of the pagan cultures around them slowly pulled them away from God. Mark this in your life, we never drift into godliness. We always drift away from it. We sing the hymn, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. And when you read the Old Testament, you see illustration after illustration of this. Even in the New Testament, there are warnings against compromise. Paul warned us in Romans Chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It pressures us. The world pressures us on a corporate level, in in denominations, in churches. It, It pressures us on an individual level where we're constantly being squeezed into the patterns of this world to embrace The values and the ways and the behaviors of a fallen, sinful world and those little compromises slowly but surely begin to take hold in our lives and we begin to be conformed. J.I. Packer diagnoses our day well. He writes this belief in absolute truth is out of fashion in our day. Relativism and pluralism have become politically correct pollutions of the cultural air we breathe and any affirmation of what purports to be absolute truth is thought of as bad manners it's so true so the only absolute truth is that there isn't any absolute truth it's all relative and if you disagree then you're just being hateful and mean There's something here that's jarring about Nehemiah's actions, but but I would say to you uh, kindly, if Nehemiah's actions here, what he does, upsets you, I think we first need to remember that he believed in the absolute truth of God's Word. He believed in the reality of God's judgment. He held to those beliefs with a conviction, to be honest, that is not very often seen today. And so I say this carefully again, but any embarrassment we might feel over Nehemiah's convictions here, it could be a sign of our own spiritual and moral decline and not his. I'm not suggesting at all that we start pulling people's hair out and beating them up when they don't share our convictions together but but if we find in ourselves the feeling that Nehemiah is just being mean here he's being judgmental here we need to check and make sure that we're not simply reflecting the influences of the corrupt culture around us was it weakness in Nehemiah's conduct that uh, Thou shall be nice seems to have no place while thou shall be committed and faithful to God was primary in his life. Would we say the same thing about Moses or David or even Jesus? Would the Apostle Paul uh, be qualified as Mr. Nice Guy in our world today? Uh, Packer adds this. He says this whole idea of niceness that niceness is the essence of goodness needs to be exploded. Nehemiah should not be criticized for thinking that there are more important things in life than being nice. His anger, his conviction flowed from a heart that longed for God's glory, that hated the sin that obstructed that glory. And church, it is good and right to have righteous anger over sin and it should lead to repentance in our lives and right living and faithfulness to God and how we live. I'm afraid that we're losing this sense of conviction today, this righteous anger over the things that anger God. Unless you think I'm Uh, Using the only example of Nehemiah, I point you to our Lord Jesus again. Nehemiah was angry because in Jerusalem, convictions had dimmed and faithfulness was floundering and worldliness was invading and spiritual ruin was now in progress. And I tell you, it was just that way when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem several hundred years later. And the spiritual Degeneration that he saw led him to a righteous anger and cleansing the temple, where he turned over tables and he took a whip and he drove people out of the temple. Not because he was mean, but because it mattered. Because the glory of God, because the truth of God's word, it mattered. Because obedience to that word mattered. the question is, does it matter to you and me? Conformity is a constant temptation for the church, and the question is, will will we stand against it? Which leads us to another lesson, I think this chapter teaches us, that, that our calling, to be sure, is not to success, but to faithfulness. To faithfulness. It's hard not to question here, for me anyway, in chapter 13, was this whole thing a success or a failure? I mean, like, the whole story, the whole chapter. All of Nehemiah's work and efforts, seems like it crumbles here that there'd been this wonderful spiritual revival and then just this incredible relapse in just a few short years. Was Nehemiah a failure? That's not how this chapter portrays him at all, right? Because three times... He prays for God to remember him, which I think is a way of highlighting his faithfulness. Verse 14, he says, remember me, oh my God, concerning this, do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 22, another prayer, remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then at the very end, verse 31, remember me, oh my God for good. This chapter presents Nehemiah as a model, not of failure, but of faithfulness. And, and the sense of his prayers is that whatever, whether he was going to succeed or not, whatever the results are going to be, he did not know. He wasn't for sure. He's praying about that, but he knew that he had been called to be faithful to God and His Word. Can I tell you that faithfulness does not always look like success? It certainly doesn't always feel like it either. At times I get weary of uh, church growth gurus and experts telling us that if we are just increasing in bodies and budgets and buildings, then we are successful as a church, or if we just follow certain procedures and techniques, then there's going to be this numer- numerical increase that's surely going to follow, and that is success. But I ask you, in whose eyes is that a success? The Apostle Paul is Nehemiah's New Testament counterpart. A man who had seen uh, churches born and grow and revivals. And yet, you think about near the end of Paul's life, he was witnessing in the church a zeal that was flagging. There was heresy that was flooding in the church. Persecution was increasing. Everywhere he looked, the spiritual sky was darkening all around him. And yet, as he faces death, he has nothing to say about his success. Only, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul doesn't know if he's been a success or not, but he's sure of one thing. I have been faithful to do what God has called me to do. I've been faithful to hold on to you and your truth when others had let go. And church, is this not the call of God on our lives? To be faithful? In the long term, both Paul and Nehemiah, I think we would say, were very successful. I mean, we have the glorious testimony of this book of Nehemiah that's been so helpful in instructing us during this time, filled with so much wisdom. We got Paul and all of his letters. But the point is this. However much success they actually had, their calling was never to success but to faithfulness. Church, it is our calling to be faithful to God and His Word. No matter the present outcome. No matter what the appearance of things are from the outside, we're called to persevere in faithfulness, pursuing Christ and His work, sharing the gospel until the very end. One last quote from Packer, Christ will build His church, he writes, using as He wills in ways that involve the appearance of triumph and disaster. Over and over again. He does that throughout history, the appearance of it. Our part is not to let either appearance fool us. But to maintain an unflinching fidelity to the particular tasks and roles that we know that he's given us to fulfill. Such faithfulness, the grace of zealously keeping on, keeping on, whether discouraged or encouraged, is one of the great lessons that Nehemiah has to teach us. I think it is a great lesson and a great reminder for us today. Our calling is faithfulness. Don't be fooled by appearances. And finally, briefly, surely, this chapter reminds us that our greatest need is a Savior. A Savior. There's a sense that Nehemiah is certainly part of a larger storyline that spans not just in his time, but all the way across redemptive history where there is sin in the beginning, there is sin in the middle, and sin in the end. And it's a desperate situation. It's a situation that is screaming out for power. When you read this book and and you think, man, we need someone greater than Ezra. We need someone greater than Nehemiah. We need someone greater than Moses and and David and the prophets. We need someone who can rescue us once and for all from this pitiful cycle of sin and death. Does Does this chapter not scream to you for a Savior, church? Does your heart not long for Him today? And the brokenness around you for his power, the power of the gospel to work in your heart and life. One commentator notes this final discouraging chapter of Nehemiah serves to remind us that God's people need something more than good leadership or the strict enforcement of the law. God's people need a Savior who will once and for all rescue them from their sin, a Savior who will transform them from the inside out, a Savior who by His sacrifice of His own life on the cross would reconcile men to God, and a Savior who would give them new hearts to love and obey His Word. Absolutely, Nehemiah points us forward to Jesus whose life and death and resurrection enable genuine salvation and lasting reformation and revival. If your heart is burdened with sin today, there's good news if you are burdened by the destructive effects of sin around you, what you see going on, if you find yourself discouraged because the skies seem to be growing dark all around us, if you find yourself caught up in a cycle of sin and frustration and discouragement, do not think that what you need the most is a change in your circumstances. You need a Savior to redeem you. And the good news of the gospel is proclaimed here today that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to take your punishment for all of your sins before God on the cross. He resurrected to cancel the power of sin and death. And the answer, as we sang earlier, He is our living hope, church, Jesus Christ. And the question is will you turn your life over to Him today? Will you say, enough is enough. I'm going to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Nehemiah is pointing us to him even today. Will you? Father, we thank you for this uh, incredible story that points us once again to our Savior, our hope, our living hope, Jesus Christ as we get ready to conclude our service, we pray that you would help us now to turn our eyes upon him. Not to the world, not to our circumstances, and certainly not to ourselves, but to Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. For those that need to make a public profession of their faith today, who want to follow Jesus, we pray that in these moments during this song, that they might come forward and let their faith in Jesus be known. We pray that you would do your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Thanks for listening to this podcast.